Um, if you were here with us last week or watched online, you'll know that we're engaged in a series on the armor of God in Ephesians chapter 6, given, as Ron was just praying, the kind of incredible destabilization and disorientation many of us are feeling, not only at large, but in the church particularly, um, we seem to be vulnerable. And so I think it helpful and um, wise to look at uh, the kind of ways that we could be attacked and weakened and uh, the like of that. So we're looking at the armor of God. Last week was kind of an introductory message, and today we're going to look at the first piece of armor. So I'm just going to read the first several verses of the text, but before I do that, I want to read some of the background texts in Ephesians, just for you to listen to, um, just to create kind of an acoustic for the message this morning. So I invite you just to hear a few of these texts, and then um, I'll jump into Ephesians 6, starting at verse 10. But from chapter 1, Paul says this, For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. And I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. And then from chapter 4, it was he, Paul says, um, emphasizing the teaching ministry of the church and the proclamational side of the church. It is he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers. For what? He says in verse 14, so that we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of men in their deceitful scheming. Instead, instead speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ. And then a little further down, he says, therefore, each of you must put off Put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbor, for we are members of one body. In your anger do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. And then finally, he says in chapter 5, have nothing, church, to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them, for it is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret, but everything exposed by the light becomes visible, for it is light that makes everything visible. And then we come to the armor of God in chapter 6. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground and after you have done everything, to stand. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist. This is God's word. former professor at Auburn Theological Seminary, uh, the now late Walter Wink, tells a story in one of his many books about a friend of his, a couple friend of his, 
who were going through a really hard time. They had just um, said goodbye to their 10-year-old son who had a long nine-month battle with cancer that they lost, that he lost to cancer. And as part of their grieving process, they decided that it would be wise for them to get away and to just go on some sort of vacation for the weekend. So they rented a hotel in a nice place by a beach with a pool down below. They were nine stories up with a beautiful view right over top of the pool. But that night, things got complicated. Um, Walter Wink's friend was in a deep sleep when he had a dream uh, that he was standing before a bog, some dirty ditch filled with muddy water. And the bog, in some way, he knew in his dream, represented um, his sin and his current despair. And in his dream, he jumped into the bog and he began to drown. And as many of us have experienced, um, as he was drowning and dying in his sleep, he woke up with a start. It's, for some reason, it's very hard to sleep through a dream where you actually die. And so he wakes up with a start, and he's laying awake in his bed, and he hears a voice as clear and audible as day saying to him, go to the balcony and jump. And then he waits a moment, and the voice says, go and jump. The trees will break your fall. You won't hurt yourself at all. Wink's friend imagines that he is sleeping and so goes to the bathroom and he splashes water on his face to make sure that he is fully awake. He goes back. He does not lay down in his bed, but he sits on the edge of his bed. And then the voice comes back and says, jump off the balcony and you'll land in the pool. Jump into the pool. It's deep enough that it will break your fall. You won't hurt yourself. But Wink's friend knew that wasn't true because it was the shallow end of the pool at that point. Then the boy said, jump, and you will see your son. And at this point, Wink relates, his friend said that it was at this point that he was actually tempted to jump because more than anything in the world at that moment, they so desperately wanted their son back. He doesn't go, but he's tempted, and the voice says in a scream, jump, 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 and just keeps repeating it. All becomes silent, and the voice says, just go and sit on the balcony. It's a beautiful view. Just, just go and sit there. This goes on for more, Wink reports, his friend reported, for then two hours. Finally, this man wakes up his wife, tells her what was going on, and the voices stopped. Walter Wink said he could not not believe the story that was told because his friend was one of the most credible people he had ever met in his life. The question, however, was how to interpret this event. Some will say that it was a function of his grief. Others would say that it's a function of post-traumatic stress that was causing some kind of hallucination. Others would say that there was an actual voice from some unseen force in the background that was speaking to him at that time. It's hard to know what was going on there. I don't think the interpretation is simple. However, the reality, friends, is this. The reality is that, as we saw last week, life is not nearly as dangerous as we think it is. It's more dangerous. Far more dangerous. There is an unseen realm. It is populated with beings 
and some of these beings who are wiser and more powerful than we are desire our ruin. As Paul will say in our text, there are powers and principalities in this dark world. Our battle, as we said last week, is therefore not against flesh and blood, as though other human beings or institutions are our enemy, but our battle is against these unseen spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And what we suggested at the end of the message, therefore, is that if our battle is a spiritual one against spiritual enemies, then we need spiritual weapons to fight this battle. We don't fight with conventional weapons of war. We need spiritual battles. In other words, Paul says here, we need to be suited up in, notice the language, the full armor of God. The Greek is the panoplion of God, the full panoply of God's own armor. Some historically have suggested that this armor that we, the church, are to be suited up in is merely defensive. We only defend against the attacks of the powers and principalities of evil. We don't take the battle to them. But this, as Walter Wink suggests, is a grave error. And it is because Paul's model for the suit of armor was a Roman soldier and was, in fact, the Roman armor. The exact armor that Paul mentions in our text is the exact armor that Roman soldiers would have been suited up in. And the defense funded the offense. The armor was taken as a package deal, and it made the Roman army, the Roman soldiers, the most formidable force in the then-known world. They were a more war machine. They advanced against their enemy's lines. And what Paul is saying in our text as well, by emphasizing the full armor of God, is that we are not merely to be defensive, but when it comes to our struggle against the powers and principalities, this armor will allow us to make an advance. And if you go back to chapter 1 of Ephesians, it is indeed not in our own strength that we are going to be able to win this battle but it is in the same strength given to us by the Spirit of God that raised Jesus from the dead. This is the power that Paul says is available to us in our battle against the powers and principalities of darkness in this world. So the first piece of equipment that Paul says that we need to be suited up with then is the belt of truth. The belt of truth. And what this means, very, very simply is that we, church, must be deep down committed to being wrapped up in. We must know the truth, live the truth, and speak the truth as revealed in God's Word. This is what it means to be wrapped up in the belt of truth. It's to know the truth as revealed by God, to live the truth, and to speak the truth as Pastor Liz was so properly and wonderfully just telling the children. We, as a people, Paul says in the letter to Timothy, are the pillar and ground of truth in the world as Christ's church. This is what we're to be, the pillar and ground of truth in the world as Christ's church. And this will give us power incredible power. And why will this give us power is a wonderful question. Why will this give us power not only to defend, but also to make an advance 
against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms? Let me state it, and then let me spend some time illustrating it from Scripture, okay? And let me just put it pointedly so hopefully it has some purchase on our imaginations and on our memories. The reason the belt of truth and being suited up in this way is so powerful, church, and our battle against the powers and principalities is because of this. It's because the power of truth is the power of exorcism. The power of truth is the power, according to Scripture, of exorcism, which is to say, being armed with the truth and wrapped up in it, as God has revealed it, will not only protect us and others from demonic attacks, it will also empower us to break that power and indeed to cast it out, to expel it, to defeat it. And now let me just illustrate this for a moment, first of all, from some foundational texts in the Old Testament where we're introduced to Satan, or the Satan. There's always a definite article. The accuser, the one whom Jesus says was a liar and a murderer from the beginning. The term and reference to the Satan, or Satan, I don't know if you're aware of this, only comes up three times in the entire Old Testament. And this is that phrase, the Satan, okay? We have the serpent, whom later we learn is Satan, but that phrase, the Satan, only comes up three times in the Old Testament. In First Chronicles 21.1, Zechariah 3.1 through 5, and then in, most famously perhaps, the book of Job. And in each case, his method of attack, his tactic, his pattern is the same. He introduces or exploits a lie in order to get a foothold on people or institutions or systems to effect their ruin, to bring about ruin in one way or another. So, for example, in Chronicles 21.1, Satan notices that David has begun to entertain the lie that his safety and the safety of his nation is proportional to the size of his army and not the size of his God. And thus he incites David to take a census to count his fighting men to act on the lie. And he does this, as we see, in order to bring down God's judgment upon David as well as the whole nation whom he represents, which he actually succeeds in doing. There's a plague. Likewise, in Zechariah 3, 1 through 5, we see the same pattern. Satan notices that the high priest Joshua is standing before the Lord in the heavenly court, wearing filthy rags, all these filthy rags, which represent his own sin and his nation's great sin. And so, always the opportunist, Satan accuses Joshua before God in order to make Joshua think or feel in his soul that God is mere justice, mere wrath against sin. In order to make Joshua think, he's condemned. There's no hope for him. In order to bring him to psychic and spiritual ruin. And then in the book of Job, it's the same foundational pattern, even if, I might add, more complicated in its execution. Because what we see in the book of Job, beloved, is that Satan approaches God with an accusation about the world God has made, an accusation that is a lie. In essence, the world you made, Almighty One, is flawed, 
because people will only love you if you do good to them. Take away somebody's family, for example, and they will curse you to your face. Take away somebody's health, oh God, and they will curse you to your face. God says the devil is wrong. Go ahead and test my servant Job, who will prove you wrong. And then, as we know, the drama plays out on the floor of history in the life of Job, who becomes, next to Jesus, Scripture's quintessential innocent sufferer. But here's something. What is seldom noticed about the book of Job is how the greatest terror that Satan works in Job's life is not achieved first and foremost or extensively through the harm he levels against Job by decimating his family and personal health. But the greatest terror the devil works against Job is by assailing him by, with his so-called friends who are possessed by a profoundly dangerous lie. They're possessed by an ideology or view of the world which proves to be well-tonight demonic. And namely, they are possessed by the, by the idea that this world operates right here and right now according to an exacting logic of perfect cosmic justice where everybody gets exactly and precisely what they deserve according to God's justice in a karma-like way. So, the ideology is, if you do good, you get good. If you do bad, you get bad. And so, your situation in life is an index of your righteousness. And thus, armed with this demonically inspired worldview that does not comport with God's reality, Job's friends, as we see, positively terrorize him with accusations of guilt and demands he confess and make atonement for sins he did not commit for crimes that we readers know he is innocent of. So you see, the demonic method in these three foundational texts, friends, do you see it? Introduce or exploit a lie in order to gain a foothold on people or groups of people and bring them to ruin. Ruin of one kind or another. And how then are these demonic lies demolished and or protected against? How are they exercised? Well, the power of truth really is the power of exorcism. The lies confront the truth, or are confronted by the truth with God's truth, and thereby the demonic influence is expelled. And this is precisely what is happening in these inspired texts themselves. The, these Old Testament texts, we should know, the texts themselves function as Scripture like the belt of truth for the community of Israel at large. They, the holy sacred Scriptures of Israel, in and of themselves, read aloud and learned, do the confronting. This is the interesting thing. Because you see, the very reason that the author of Chronicles tells the story of David as he does in a historical narrative as he does is precisely in order to confront the lie that God is not trustworthy, that God is not enough. And in order to protect and or exercise in his in exile readers from similar demonic attacks. And again, the very reason 
Zechariah communicates the episode concerning Joshua to Israel while giving Satan a central role is to confront the lie that God is ruthless justice alone and show that God is both simultaneously justice and mercy, truth and grace, and that there is therefore great hope. He will, in the face of our repentance, take off our filthy rags as he does with Joshua and dress us in clean ones. He will forgive us, not because we deserve it, but because of his own cascading parental love. So we need not despair. And then in the same way, once again, the very reason the author of Job writes what he writes in that incredible epic story of Job, in his wisdom way, is to confront the lie that this world right here and right now is the staging ground for cosmic justice, where everyone will and is getting exactly and precisely what they deserve, and that therefore we humans are in the position to make exalted judgments about other people's guilt and interrogate and terrorize them endlessly. Because the truth is, as the prologue of Job and the end of Job both make clear in different ways, sometimes people suffer terribly not because of their own sin or their own guilt, but because there are things going on behind the scenes that we don't understand. And because God is much bigger and more mysterious than we have ever given him credit for, God will bring things to justice eventually. That is Scripture's truth. But not always right now. The book of Job serves to exorcise a faulty, demonic ideology out of the community at large in Israel, an ideology that, as we see with Job, brings ruin. And so do you see it? In the Old Old Testament itself, in the very texts themselves, the power of truth really is the power of exorcism, protecting Israel from demonic attacks and also breaking that power and casting it out. It is the same in the life of Jesus. Exactly the same. And let me just give you a couple of examples, and why I'm piling examples on examples will become clear as I move toward application, but just here are a few more examples of how this works now in the life of Christ. In the first place, the devil or demonic begin by bringing forward lies or exploiting lies already present. We see this, for example, just three examples. We see this, for example, when the devil comes to Jesus in the desert immediately after his baptism with the lie that, even though the Father has just said in Jesus' baptism, this is my Son whom I love and whom I am well pleased, the devil comes with the lie that Jesus actually needs to prove that he is who God said he is rather than trust God's word about him. If you are the Son of God, turn these stones into bread. In other words, trust your own ability to prove that you are who God says you are rather than in the Word of God itself. It will bring Jesus to ruin if he goes down that path, as, by the way, it will do the same to us. We see this again when the devil comes to Peter just before the arrest of Jesus, urging Peter to trust in his own strength and believe in his own inherent abilities to underestimate his own weakness and sin, in other words. And then, among other places, we see it yet again, and in a very fascinating way, I might add, when the devil also goes to the temple establishment, we are to understand, and has been doing so for years after year after year, and manages, by his dark magic, 
to get the authorities there to believe, as Jesus is going to expose, okay, to believe that they can be a house of God and a house of greedy self-interest at one and the same time. Gets them to devour this lie. And then, in each instance, Jesus our Lord, whom the gospel writers present as truth itself in walking form, confronts these demonic lies with the truth. God's revealed truth in Scripture and in Jesus himself as the embodiment of the truth of Scripture, as a truly human being. And he performs exorcisms in the broader way that I've defined them. The truth, says Jesus, bluntly to Satan, is that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. He confronts the lie directly, thereby breaking the power that Satan is trying to gain over him. The truth, says Jesus to Peter, in a loving and pastoral way, just one-on-one with the two of them, is that Satan has desired to sift you as wheat, Peter, by trying you to get to trust in yourself too much. But I have prayed for you. And you will learn just how weak you really are, Peter. Before the rooster crows, you will disown me. This is the truth about you, Peter. You think you're strong, but you will disown me. And you'll learn the truth about who you are and not have an overinflated sense of your own strength. And finally, the truth says Jesus to the temple establishment is that you have made my father's house into a den of robbers. And notice that at the same time, and this is in every one of the gospels, by the way, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, every one of them, at the same time as Jesus speaks this word of truth, Jesus also performs a symbolic exorcism on the entire establishment the corrupt institution, indicating that it is entirely corrupt and has been co-opted as an institution by the powers and principalities of evil. It has become demonic to its core. And why do I say Jesus' action in the temple is an exorcism? Well, it's because as Jesus is swinging his whip, we're told by every single gospel writer that Jesus then also casts out everyone who is a representative of the establishment. And the word that is used in the Greek there is the word ekbalo. Jesus ekbalos them. He casts them out. It's the same word that is used every time when Jesus casts out a demon in the Gospels. He casts the demonic out. And now he casts out the leaders of the religious establishment. He performs an exorcism on the institution as a whole because it has become co-opted by a lie by the powers and principalities at their core as a whole. And he does it, notice, in a public way via symbolic action. And the lesson for us, I think, I'll get to the lesson in a moment, but first just notice that it is again by confrontation with truth that the powers and principalities are not only defended against, but defeated. The power of truth is the power of exorcism. We see it in the Old Testament. We see it in Jesus. And as I could multiply but will not, we see it over and over and over and over again in the early church in the passages of the New Testament. And so, the long and the short of all of this and all of these examples is this. 
we should know and accept this, as Paul is getting on about in our text. The role of the church in the world today, beloved of God, as individual Christians and as a church as a whole, especially as we stand arm to arm together, is to carry on this work of the Lord. Which is why we must be buckled up with the belt of truth. We, too, are to confront the lies that are ever-present in our world by which the devil uses to get a foothold on people in order to bring about their ruin, society's ruin, institutional ruin. We are to confront it. Now, I know very, very well how uncomfortable this probably makes many of us. Because, you know, we have met people before, and how uncomfortable it makes me, because we have met people before who believed that they had a corner on the truth, and they were going to let everybody in the world know just what that truth was and bonk them over the head with it. We've met people like that, those who know that they are in the know, and we've seen how dangerous that can be. So let me point out something that is incredibly important for all of this, and it's why I multiplied examples. Notice that in all of the examples that I just gave of confronting the powers and principalities with truth, the method is never exactly the same. Demonic lies and influence is confronted by the chronicler with a historical narrative. Demonic lies and influence is confronted by Zechariah with a prophetic word and a vision of what's going on in heaven. And then it's confronted by Job with an epic tale that, by the way, was probably originally designed as a postgraduate fellow friend of mine wrote an entire monograph on. It was designed originally to be performed on stage as a demonic monologue and dialogue powerfully before the people of Israel. And then Jesus confronts the lies in all sorts of ways. In turn by blunt force, then pastoral softness, then profound symbolic action performed in the public square before the crowds of people. Different every time according to context. And the lesson for us, I think, is this. Exceptionally important. Every context is different. Every person we meet is different. It's not enough, in other words, to merely speak the truth as individual Christians, and as a church. How we speak the truth, how we confront powers and principalities that have lodged themselves by way of lies in people and or societies and or institutions is just as important. It must always be done with love, which means it must always be done with wisdom. Jesus tells us that we as his disciples must be, remember this line, we must be as wise as serpents and as innocent as doves. <laughs> wise as serpents, though, as we go about his work of truth-telling in this world and rest restoration in this world. This means that we need to be crafty. It does. But crafty for the purpose of the good. We need to be winsome for the purpose of good. We need to be not deceptive, but calculating in our confrontations of lies with truth. Blunt force trauma, as most of us know in our own individual lives, rarely works. Although Jesus shows us that sometimes, and maybe especially in religious settings, 
It is the only way. But at other times then, we'll need to engage maybe in symbolic action or by writing a poem or composing a song or writing a screenplay or painting a picture that allows the truth subtly to radiate out and scare away the darkness. Maybe we need even more simply not to send a text or email as we so often do, but actually engage in a face-to-face sit-down for coffee. How we speak is so important. What we say is critical. How we say it is also critical. Imagine that the devil has been getting a foothold on your spouse by encouraging your spouse to hold on to their anger and to nurture it, and they're becoming closed in on themselves and cranky and self-serving, and it's impacting your marriage, and you are frustrated. But instead of blowing up at them and telling them the truth with fire, as we are wont to do, you instead draw them close, look them in the eye, say, I love you so much, sweetheart, and then say, I see that you're really struggling. How can I serve you? A gentle answer, Scripture says, turns away wrath. In the struggle against incidences and patterns of systemic racism across the U.S. in the 60s, a group of incredibly courageous and spiritually powerful blacks marched across a bridge arm-to-arm in protest while refusing to engage in violent resistance. They spoke the truth in a way that had a profound impact in exposing and doing damage to the demonic system that was at play in their day because their way of standing for truth cracked open hearts. How we speak truth to power, friends, is as important as the truth we speak. We must be as wise as serpents, even while being as innocent as doves. Now, even after this clarification and what we might call methodological nuance, I realize it's still hard for us as Christians today to speak truth to power and to speak truth even into the lives of those who are close to us, and especially when it comes to trying to speak or communicate truth to those in our world. We shrink from it. We are shy about doing this today. And I would love this morning to talk about some reasons why I believe that we are kind of afraid to be truth-tellers in our world today. I'd like to talk about things like our postmodern contexts, our deep-down fear of not being liked, and our false canons of authority and identity structures. I think there'd be a great deal of merit in talking about those things, and maybe we'll pick it up on the podcast this week. But I recognize the need to wrap up here so that we can participate in communion together. So allow me just to conclude here. Um, to wrap things up by making a couple of applicatory points that I think will be helpful. Two quick points that I think we can distill from this lesson about the belt of truth and what we've said so far. First, the life of the mind for the Christian is incredibly important. Knowing the truth we have learned can protect us from incredible harm Protect us, in fact, and deliver us and others from the powers and principalities of darkness themselves. And you know, but perhaps this is at least part of the reason why the author of Hebrews wants his community to move on from spiritual milk to spiritual meat in their knowledge of divine things and expresses frustration that this is not happening more quickly. He's zealous for them, in other words, to become comprehensively biblically literate, because he knows that it will protect them from the onslaught of evil in the world. 
Perhaps this is why Jesus throughout his ministry engages more than anything in teaching about Scripture and his own fulfillment of it. He engages in a teaching ministry that's verified by signs. Perhaps this is why Paul, as we saw as I read at the beginning, when he prays for the churches, almost always prays in some way or another. Prays that their knowledge would deepen, that they would become more, um, they would have greater and greater levels of insight. And perhaps this is also why in the Old Testament, parents are urged and even commanded over and again to teach their children in the way that they should go, in the fear that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, so that it might go well with them when they grow up. This is the beauty of Liz giving the Bible to the kids here for me this morning as touched. We must never neglect the life of the mind, friends, and take responsibility to inculcate in ourselves a Christian world and life view, to buckle up with the belt of truth, and especially, perhaps, to make sure we are doing this with our children. It is so incredibly important. If we don't give them a Christian world and life view, they will absorb different ones. Second, the role of intimate Christian community and faith formation is also exceptionally important. Learning the truth is important, and so sometimes, because we're all sinners prone to drifting away, is being confronted by the truth. But the only way this ever really works is when we find ourselves in the presence of people we know love us and whom we deeply trust, and they know how to speak to us. I've had it, and likely so have you people who have really no place in our lives, we have no relationship with them, want to come and confront us with a tough truth they believe we need to hear, but we can't hear them. We won't. Our defenses are too high, and the only way around this is to nest ourselves in smaller, intimate community groups where we know others and can be known by them. So if you're not already in such a group, I encourage you, if you are able, to get into one so that we can advance in the Christian life. Thank you for listening to the Willoughby Church Sermon Podcast. The Willoughby Church Podcast Network also has podcasts about discipleship, the Heidelberg Catechism, and even a podcast hosted by some of the youth. You can find out more about the Willoughby Church Podcast Network by going to willoughbychurch.com.